you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, welcome again, everyone. Uh, Thank you all so much for being here and being part of our service today. Uh, I know I mentioned it earlier, but whether you're here in person, watching live online, or listening or watching to the sermon later on, uh, we're just so grateful we honor you for being part of uh, our service today, for joining us as we dive into God's Word. If we've not met yet, my name is JP, and I'd love an opportunity to meet you here after the service. Or if you're watching online and you'd like to get connected, uh, you could go ahead and reach out to our host, or you can click some of the links at the top of the screen in order to find out more about our church, and we'd love to be able to come alongside you in this journey, wherever you are with God, whether you are following him for years or decades and looking for a church or visiting someone and you're here, or whether you're just on that first step and you don't know if you should be here or what you're you're doing here, but if, if that's you, just know how grateful we are that you are here. And I truly believe that God has a plan for each and every one of us who are going to be part of this sermon, part of this message today. And so we're going to dive into Philippians chapter 2 in a couple of moments. Uh, But before we begin, I need to start off um, with a confession about something that maybe some of you are better at than I am, but I know that I am not good at this. Um, Are there, with a quick show of hands, how many of you, uh, when you set an alarm, you wake up right away when it goes off? Okay. How many of you have thought about the fact that when alarm goes off or goes on, it means the same thing? It's weird. Um, but how many of you are people who push the snooze button? Raise them, raise them high, my friends. I'm with you on this. So this is one of those where I do that. Some of you don't even need, is there anyone who doesn't need an alarm? Like you wake up with the sun and you're just better than all of us? Excellent. Um, so I am someone that I've, I've been known to fall asleep very quickly. Um, I, my wife, uh, sometimes doesn't love the fact about me that I can fall asleep like while my bed is hitting the, or my head is hitting the pillow and she's up a little bit longer. Um, I'm in college. I had a roommate. He and I would take the same classes. We were the same major. We had almost all the same classes. So what that meant was that we had papers due the same day and tests the same day. And so we would end up studying together. He was very good at kind of working on papers for a while and, and, you know, setting things up and doing a little bit every day when I was not. And so I would stay up and I would do my research, but then I just like to knock it all out. So we would have all-nighters where we're just working on similar documents together. But here's something that, that I did uh, that was less than good. So I had heard about these things called seven-minute naps, like a power nap. Has anyone ever done a, like a seven-minute power nap? They've never worked for me. But what I would do is I would go in there, I would lay on, my, on the floor, because if I laid on my bed, I would just be out for the night, right? So I'd lay on the floor of my college apartment, and I would set my phone for seven minutes to set an alarm. And it would go off, and inevitably, I would keep pushing the snooze for seven minutes. So I took like, I would get to like seven, seven minute naps, which is just like an unfortunate 49 minute interrupted nap. And I would come out, and my roommate, Tim, would just be like, Seven minute nap, huh? And I was like, yep. And also, we, it was not great. I'm someone that I still, because I could fall asleep so quickly, that when I wake, when I have this alarm set, I might set it for five more minutes or 10 more minutes or seven more seven minute naps, not really. 
But whenever I do, it's like I could actually fall asleep within that time and I could like have a little mini dream. And so I always feel like it's worth it. But in contrast to that, I was, at, uh, I was at Zimbabwe for a missions trip, and there was a team of us in 2011 that we went there. And I had, uh, you know, all the guys would stay in the same cabin area or the same room. And there was one of the guys who was definitely not an alarm snoozer. He was someone when the alarm went off, he got up right away. And he would start off, we wake up, and he would start off, for those of you maybe who've grown up in the church or you have some familiarity, there's... Uh, there's a song that he would sing right when he woke up. He grew up in the church. So alarm would go off or he'd wake up and he would just start singing, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. And he would sing the whole first verse. And then I have to admit, when I heard that when I was tired, my first thought was not to give God the glory, glory. <laughs> I was like, go back to bed because this is early. So why do we bring this up? Because today, we're going to unpack a passage about what it looks like for Christians, for those of us who know and love Jesus. What does it look like for us to shine our lights and to give God the glory in the way that we live? What does it look like for us to rise up above maybe the way that the world, um, so we could stand out and be different than the world around us, different than the culture around us? How do we rise up and show how the gospel does make a difference in how we think, how we speak, how we act, how we live, and what does it look like, and what, how does that change the world when God's people have been changed by him? So will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to see what God has through us from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for each person who is here with us today, whether here is in person, live, whether here is watching live online, or here is watching or listening later throughout the week, God, I know God, that each person who hears my voice is someone who is deeply loved by you, someone who is created by you and shaped by you and formed by you. God, and I know that each person who hears my voice is someone that Jesus died for and that Jesus invites into right relationship with you. And I know that each person who hears my voice, Holy Spirit, is someone you want to draw closer to yourself today. So God, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. If you have your own Bible you brought with you, that's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to have um, a, a physical Bible to use, you can go ahead and there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or underneath your seat. If you have your Bible app, that's great. And if you're watching online, you can click the Bible tab and jump down to Philippians 2, chapter 12 through 18, or verse through 12 through 18 as well. So as we get there, um, the topic being rise and shine, Paul, as we looked at last week, We had this dynamic where we looked at how Paul wanted to show that we need to flip the way of the world or we need to flip the mindset of the world completely upside down. That in order to follow Christ, we put others first, not our own. We seek the good of other people above ourselves. We take the very nature of a servant and use any advantages that we have to help other people rather than to just help ourselves. And we recognize that life is not all about us, life is all about Christ and pointing people towards him. And so what we're going to unpack today in the minutes that we have together is building upon that case, building upon that argument that Paul lays out. Because we are in the book of Philippians throughout the whole summer, because the book of Philippians is a book that Paul wrote while he was in prison. 
in order to encourage a church that was experiencing trials and disunity and difficulty, persecution, that he writes it from a prison and he says that even in prison and even you who are going through trials and difficulty and all those different things, persecution, he says you can still find joy and peace and have a content life. So our series through Philippians this summer is the consent life, unpacking how to have consentment, how to have joy, how to have peace, not because of everything around us being perfect, because we all know it's not, but how to be able to have joy, peace, and content life in the midst of that and not to flee from the world, not to, to go away from the difficulty and people who need Jesus, not to hide, but to shine like stars in the midst of it. And so we're going to look at, in our list today, we can rise and shine and give God the glory through these three different things that Paul talks about in these few short verses we have together. Starting in verse 12, or the first one rather, the first one thing is that we see that we can give God the glory, we can rise and shine and give God the glory through our works, through our works. But let's unpack that because you and I, uh, as a pastor I know likes to say, we may ha- use the same words, but we, we may have different dictionaries. So when I say works, when you say works, we may think different things. So let's unpack what that means to make sure we're on the same page with what Paul is trying to encourage us with. Verse 12 starts off like this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, I highlighted the word therefore on the slides because we mentioned this last week. Whenever you're doing a Bible study or whenever you're studying God's word, whether individually or in church or in a small group, whenever we see a therefore, we want to always ask, what's it there for? What is it referring back to? And so what this is referring back to is having this attitude as Christ Jesus, putting others' needs above our own. To be able to live a life in a manner that is worthy of following Christ. The idea in, Philipp- or in Philippians 1.27 is when you live a manner worthy of it, it's, it's that your actions, it's like a scale, that your actions and your words, they match. You don't say one thing and do the opposite. You live with integrity. The word integrity, as we know, comes from the word integer, the idea that it's whole, that there's no difference between who you say you are and who you really are. There's no cracks in your foundation. There's integrity. The opposite of that is the idea of when, if you've ever been driving on the freeway or you have like a little pebble that goes and it cracks your windshield, and it's a small crack, but if you don't take care of it, it ends up splintering throughout the whole windshield. If we don't live with integrity, there may be small cracks that if we don't live it out, if we don't confess them, if we don't have accountability, if we don't work through those things and ask God to help us through the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can have a fractured life that distorts the way that we live. So Paul's saying, listen, have your actions and your words, have them match. Put others' needs above yourself. Therefore, if you do this, he says, continue to work out your salvation. Now, when we think of works, that idea can be that we have to work for our salvation. We think it might be, okay, well, I have to work for it. I have to earn it. I have to do enough good things so that when God has an accounting ledger of my good and bad in my life, I have more good than bad. Therefore, I know I'll be okay with God. But the truth is, it's not saying works to earn salvation. 
We don't work for it as if it's a wage that we earn, that if we do enough good things, God has to forgive us or God has to love us. It's not about what we've done. It's about what Christ has done for us. That there are no, there's no one that is good, not even one. That the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. That all of us have brokenness, but the one who is purely and truly whole, Jesus Christ, took that brokenness upon himself. And he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So all this is to say we're not working for our salvation like it's a wage that we are owed. Because we can never pay that debt. But we are working out our salvation. David L. Hawking in his uh, commentary about Philippians puts it this way. The word work out means, the words work out, excuse me, means to achieve, affect by labor or toil. So then you think, okay, it is this idea of you're working for it. You're trying to affect it. You're trying to toil for your salvation. But the word work is put with the preposition meaning down or according to. So if it was just you ought to work for your salvation, if that preposition wasn't there, then it would be the way we think it is. We have to earn it. We have to do enough good things. We need to have a positive ledger so that we can, our good outweighs our bad. Therefore, we can go into heaven. But that's not what it says. It says we are to work according to or in reference to our salvation. In other words, our works, the things that we do, the way that we treat people, the words that we use, the life that we live, the generosity of our hearts for our time and our talents and our treasure, the things that shape our lives have to be through the worldview, through the perspective of the fact that we have salvation in Christ Jesus. And if God is not, if Jesus is not the one that shapes our foundation of our world, and if his word is not foundational to our lives, then it's going to be really easy for us to be able to just follow along with the way the culture around us is. It's going to be really easy for us to kind of make small compromises here and there. It's going to be really easy for us to allow small cracks in our windshield that if we're not careful, will fracture and splinter our lives. So it's saying, instead, work in reference to, have the mindset that because you've been saved, it changes how we live. If you've seen the movie, Remember the Titans, there's a scene where Coach Boone is taking them on and getting through training and all these different things. And he talks about how we're going to change the way we eat. We're going to change the way we live. And it's all of this time where everything would have to change for this football team to come together. A football team from two separate high schools that had been come together with different races and had to figure out a way to work together in the midst of a segregated state. And so it was this idea of we'd have to change everything about who we are to become a team. Friends, you and I, when we come to know Jesus, when his salvation for us is the foundation of our lives, and we do our works in reference to or in accordance to that, it changes the way we live. It changes everything about us. And so the way that we work is super important. The way that we do things, not for God because we earn it, but for God because we love him. We're going to look back at the verse again and continue on. So go to the next slide. The idea that... For it is God, uh, excuse me, for with salvation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, because in the Old Testament, fear was something that we would see in regards to God, that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. But when we think of fear, we think of something that is 
like scary that we should be afraid of God because he's awful. But instead, it's the idea that we're so filled with reverence that we go back to what awful really meant, being filled with awe the way it was originally used. So the idea that we are working on our fear with, or our salvation with fear and trembling, there's two different definitions I want to give according to Robertson's word studies in the New Testament. The first one is this, fear and trembling does not, can we go to the next slide, please? Uh, does not refer to, quote, slavish terror, but wholesome, serious caution. This is not a slave who is terrified of a master who's going who's gonna to hurt them, but someone who wants to be seriously cautious about doing the right thing. Marvin Vincent said it that way, or J.B. Lightfoot says it's a nervous and trembling anxiety to do right. I remember when I was probably about nine, about nine or ten years old, um, I would ride my bike to my, my friend's house, and um, I had like, this like neon, like pink to green gradient bike, so you can be jealous if you want, and I had this helmet that started in the front with purple and then faded to the back, pink, also gradient, also the two manliest colors my mom chose, and so we're able to, I would go on my bike and I would ride it, but there were times when I'd go visit my friends, and then I would be a little embarrassed about wearing that purple and pink helmet. And so there was one time I remember I was not wearing it and I put, uh, I hung it over the um, handlebars. And this was before I had a bike that had the hand brakes. It was the one that had the foot brakes where you put the foot backwards to, to brake for the pedal. And so I remember I was riding and I was going a little too fast. And because I was trying to brake, because there was a car, a parked car in front of me, and because the helmet was hanging, I wasn't able to engage the brake, and I crashed right into the back of the car. So yes, I've run into a parked car before. And I ended up, you know, the, the owner of the car came out and, you know, asked what happened and, you know, called me. Or he was like, okay, here's, I need to have your phone number. I need to know your name. And I, you know, I'm, I'm going to call your parents. And for a moment, you think about, you know, like, and I didn't do this, but like, you know, some people would have been like, well, just give a fake number and, or do something like that. I'm like, no, like I gave the right number. And I remember riding my bike home and just trying to think, what am I going to say to my mom when I, one, tell her I didn't wear the purple and pink helmet, but what am I going to say about it? Do I just not say anything? Do I try to hide it? And bike ride wasn't that far. It was about 10 minutes away, but I just remember riding, like, I want to do the right thing, but what do I do? Do I hide it? Do I say something? So I got home, and I said, Mom, you know, I need, I need to mention something that just happened. Um, on my way, I wasn't riding my helmet, and, and I crashed into the back of this car. There wasn't a ton of damage. The, you know, they weren't, like, asking for, for monetary gain. It was, just a, it was just a small crash. But I was anxious about it. What do I do? I want to do the right thing. And I'm glad I told her because she said, yeah, the woman already called me before you came, and I wanted to see if you would tell me. I love it when I pass a test I didn't know I was taking, right? <laughs> but it's this idea of a, maybe I wasn't nervously trembling with anxiety, but it's that I want to do the right thing. We've all had those moments where we want to do the right thing. Sometimes we have, and we've passed the test we didn't know we were taking, and other times we haven't. What Paul's saying here is that we want to have the same awe and reverence to be able to want to do the right thing so badly for God, Again, not because we need to earn salvation through our works, but because we want to have our works be an overflow and an example and an act of worship to God that we're so grateful for his salvation. 
We're working in reference to it to a point that we want to do the right thing for him. And then the last part about this, these verses I want to pull out real briefly is the idea that it is God who works in you. So this reiterates the mindset that it's not just you have to work and earn your own salvation. It's saying God is the one who is at work in you. So God is working in us and through us and shaping us and molding us. But it's not just for our own good. We are not just growing and being changed by God to hoard all the blessing for ourselves. We're not doing it so that we could then keep our own needs above the interests of others. We're not doing it so we could have a selfish ambition that we are the best Christians or that we are the best religious people or we are the best at this. Remember that therefore we do all this to help others, to put others' needs first. And so when we recognize that it's God working in us, it's because he wants to work through us. Some of the verbiage we talk about here is we want to help people get plugged into the people and the purpose of the church. And that we aren't perfect people, but we are people who've been changed by God to change the world. We're not changed by God to have a more comfortable life. We're not changed by God so that we feel better about ourselves. We're changed by God to change the world, one relationship at a time. Warren Wearsby talks about it this way. He says, God must work in us before he can work through us. God is more interested in the workmen than in the work. God is interested in working in your life, in your holiness, in your sanctification, in your growth, in your following God and growing deeper in a relationship with God. He's more interested in shaping you and molding you than just whatever task is in front of you. Because he knows that if he could shape and change who you are, then whatever task is in front of you, you will do for the glory of God. And you'll do it not for your own needs or your own interests, but the interests of others. So that was our longest one, the idea in the first couple of verses that we can rise and shine and give God the glory through our works. How we work in reference to God, not in order to earn from God, but in relation to how much we are loved by him and want to honor him. Then we continue on that we, are also, we can also rise and shine and give God the glory, glory through our words, through what we say and what we don't say. Verse 14 do everything without grumbling or arguing. Uh, I'll stop there for a second because that is a short verse with a hard application. It's the kind of verse that parents, you know, when we have, um, when we have our kids might be arguing with one another, that's a real easy verse to be able to like, do everything without grumbling or complaining. But it's amazing how easy it is to fall into grumbling and complaining grumbling or arguing. That, that word grumbling, uh, that word refers back to in the Old Testament when God had rescued his people out of Egypt. This is in this, the book of Exodus, if you want to read some of the story, that he rescues them. There's the plagues. He sets them free from, from Egypt. The chariots start coming after them. They open, he opens up, God opens up the Red Sea. They get through. The chariots are washed away. They sing a song of glory to God in the song of Miriam and Moses in chapter 15. And then by the end of chapter 15, before the chapter that has the song of praise to God even finishes, they're already starting to grumble. And in, verse, in chapter 16, they grumble even more because they want meat. They said, we had onions and leeks and all these delicious foods in Egypt. And they started grumbling and murmuring. It's, it's the idea in the Greek of muttering under your breath. Like, oh, I don't want to do that anyway. Just that kind of murmuring. 
We're not voicing it out loud, but we're grumbling. And sometimes that grumbling can end up being so divisive. Because if you're on a team with someone at work and some people start grumbling to you, what does that do? Does that build unity within that team? Or does it create division? When we lack the, the gratitude and we lean into grumbling, we lose sight of what we already have and we get upset about not being content for what we don't have. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And this is just the idea of having a dialogue that you dispute. You ever know those people? Maybe you are those, and if you can, um, this idea of you just fi- you can find a reason to argue about anything. Some people just like to be able to f- to be able to come on the other side of an of a um, an argument. And if you're in your mind thinking, well, I don't like to be arguing just for the sake of arguing, it might be you. So, um, but no, just recognize that we all have this within us to say. We either grumble, we mutter under our breath, or we find reasons to dispute for no reason. Even there is no reason, we find some. But when people do work, they do good things without grumbling or complaining, it is such an incredible thing to watch. We're looking at one room out of many that had been decorated by so many different volunteers, but Mary and Susie on our staff who led so many volunteers to come in to put things up to spend time the week before accumulating donations, putting things together. But then there's all the rooms downstairs that you're not even seeing that have a similar theme and they look great. And then on Friday, well, sorry, at the beginning of the week, um, we all know this was probably the hottest week of the year so far, of the summer so far. And on Monday, we show up, all of us show up, and it turns out that the hottest day of the week and the week of VBS, the air conditioning in some of our rooms broke. And so we're like, oh man, like God really wanted us to experience this desert theme. And so, but just recognizing that it's, it's this moment of, okay, it could be so easy to just grumble and to complain, but our volunteers did such a great job. I mean, we're not perfect, but they just stepped up and did the work they needed to do. That on Friday after the, the, we had a barbecue here and we had a bounce house, after people were starting to leave, it was, now we need to clean up. And we had some students who did, some crew leaders who did an amazing job, uh, specifically the Rochas, who just, stu- just stepped up and did things without grumbling and without complaining. We had volunteers like Jill Johnston who stayed after, and there was just a few of us left and was continuing to go out to the shed out there and put things away, and we would throw trash away. And I'm just sitting here, and I'm like, it would be so easy for these wonderful people to grumble and complain, but we just did the work. And I found myself grumbling inwardly to myself more than they were, which was a challenge for me to be able to recognize, okay, when you do things without grumbling or arguing, it really does create a beautiful witness. Because no one wants to do certain difficult things, but when we do those things with the right attitude, we stand out and we shine. So do everything without grumbling or complaining. Why? What happens as a result of not complaining? Verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. The way that we show, one of the main ways we see in this passage that we could show and shine our light, that we could be blameless and pure, that we could stand out in a world is not to grumble and not to argue. There are things going on around our world where it's hard and we can look at things and be frustrated about things. 
But if our frustration level only goes to the level of grumbling and not the, the level of praying or interceding or serving or helping, then we don't look all that different from the culture around us that grumbles when things are difficult. There's some good things going on. There's some hard things going on. But how we respond with our words will either point people to Jesus or it'll make us blend into the world. It will either cause us to stand out and shine or it will cause us to blend in and fade. The way that we can become blameless and pure. So blameless means good morally. Pure is this idea of unmixed. So if you think about like, when I make the, our girls hot cocoa and it's like the milk before the chocolate powder inside of it, is, it's unmixed. It's pure milk. But then once you mix it, it's not. But that's not the best example because we all know that hot chocolate's delicious. But think of it as like a bad example. Um, it's unmixed. It's pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Warped is another word for depraved. It's another word for what is meant to be right has now been twisted into wrong. What God says is good, the world says is bad. And then it's this idea of crooked, where there should be a direct path, but the, the way of the world has been curved to be something very different. It's been molded and shaped and directed in a different way. These verses refer to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, in which God uses this idea for his own people, saying that you are becoming a crooked and depraved generation because you're not following God's words. So it was originally applied to God's people, and then Paul uses it to apply to the culture around us. So we look at, real briefly, we've talked about works, how we do things in reference to or according to our salvation. That's how we live differently. That causes us to rise and shine. We talk about our words and how we don't grumble, we don't dispute. If we have something that we're upset about with someone, we go directly to them in order to handle conflict rather than creating what's called the sin of triangulation, where if you have a problem with one person and then you go to another person about that person, you've now created a triangle of tension. And so in order to handle things properly in conflict resolution, you go directly to someone. So it doesn't mean you don't have problems with people, but it's finding the way to have a healthy unity in the midst of it. How do you have a healthy conflict resolution rather than creating division, disunity, disharmony, and ultimately becoming a witness that does not stand out and shine in the world? But if, we've, if we sow the seeds of disunity and disharmony, and we look just like everyone around us, then people would say, well, how is the gospel any different then? Because you guys are just the same as everyone else. So lastly, we want to honor God through our worship. And I don't mean like singing on key through every song. I don't mean like perfect clapping because every time I try to clap in a worship song, about three bars in, I just give up. Um, and so it's not about worship through our song, but it's remembering that Paul tells us in a different book that we want to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as our spiritual act of worship. The idea that we want to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ, to worship God with everything that we have, with all that we are, all that we say, all that we think, all that we do. So here's how Paul continues in this book, and starting in the second part of verse 16. Then you will shine like stars, shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. 
And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He's using this verbiage of being poured out like an offering. And it's this idea that if the Philippians, because of their service and their sacrifice, they're offering a sacrifice to God. And he's being poured out. This idea of being poured out can, can relate to sufferings and to difficulty that he's experiencing. And we see that through others of his writings, others of his epistles. So it's the idea of he's like, I am suffering. But if my suffering could be an act of worship that adds to your worship, your service to God, then I rejoice. Because then he knows that he hasn't run or labored in vain. He is not giving his life to the gospel and the people that he's serving and the people he shared the gospel with, it's not that they're not getting it. They're willing to face struggles too. So Paul says, if you're sacrificing in your life and I'm just adding to that, and both your sacrifice and service and me as Paul pouring out my life, if both of these are like an act of worship that go up to God, that in ancient cultures there'd be sacrifices. They, they, some people would pour a drink offering on top of a sacrifice. Sometimes there would be a sacrifice that would be there and they would pour something next to it as part of a libation or, or, or a drink offering. So Paul's saying, listen, your service, my sufferings, this is all an act of worship. So whether we're serving God and things are going well, if we do it in accordance to him and we work out our salvation in accordance to him, that's an act of worship. Whether we're suffering and we don't know why and we cry out to God and yet in our pain and our difficulty we all make the choice either to run to God with our frustrations and with our pain or we run from him because of our frustrations or because of our pain. And friends, I want to encourage you, God can handle all of your frustration and your pain if you run to him. God is big enough to handle every, the, all the strongest emotions you've ever had. You read the book of Psalms and you see that there's anger, there's crying out, there's abandonment, there's pain, there's heartache, there's fear, there's anxiety. And they run to that. The psalmist will run to God with that. And he handles it. He's with us in the midst of it. He doesn't hide that we can bring our emotions to him because it's in his word that gives us the example of how to say, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Say, God, you've left me in the pit. My enemies are coming after me. God, I feel alone. How come is, why is it that the unrighteous thrive while the righteous are suffering? All these ideas are in God's word which show us and model for us that we could come to God when we're suffering, when we're struggling, when we're hurting. We should say, God, I'd rather run to you with all of my junk than to run from you because of it. All of that is an act of worship. It's laying our lives down. It's saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. God, would you take whatever I have and would you take it and use it for your kingdom? Sometimes we feel like we could face giants and we're able to navigate things with the power of God and other times we're like the boy in John 6 who just brings his lunch and said, God, this is all I've got. 
And Jesus says that all you've got is sometimes all you need when you bring it to me. And he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he feeds thousands. Friends, some of you today are like, it just takes all I've got to be here today or all I've got to still have a conversation open with God because I'm hurting and I don't know where he is. May you know that when you run to God with that, all you've got is all you'll need when you bring it to Christ. Doesn't mean it's all going to be better instantly. Doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. But it means that the perfect one is with you instantly. And you're not ever alone. Matthew chapter 5 verses 14 through 16 reiterate and kind of finalize our mindset of what it means to shine and how it is that we do this. It says this. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither, can, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and you get all the credit. No, that's not what it says. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, I don't know about you in your context. For some of you, you might be the only one who follows Jesus in your home. So shining your light means every day knowing that there are going to be people around you that are going to question you, they're going to look at everything, that they're going to know you, and they're going to know all your faults. And yet you shine. How? Through your works, through your words, through your worship. Some of you are in school, and well, school's out now, but in your classmates, and, and you recognize that you only have one class with someone, and that's your opportunity to shine and to be like Christ to them. That we often have a mindset that the main thing we need to do to be a light to people is to invite them to church. Should we do that? Yes, of course. We want people to be able to hear God's word and to worship God and to do that together. But if the extent of our reaching out to people who are far from God is purely invitational, come hear my pastor speak, then we better hope that I'm on it that day. Otherwise, we're going to have problems, right? The power is not in purely invitational. That's part of it. But the greater power is in being incarnational, is being Christ in the flesh wherever you are. I can't shine a light in your household the way that you can. I can't shine a light in your classrooms the way that you can. I can't shine a light inside your groups, inside your workplace the way that you can. God doesn't have me in those places. God has you in those places to be able to shine your light and do so in such a way that people see your good deeds and they don't think about giving you credit. They want to find out why you do it. And you could say, because I want to give glory to God. I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I want to do things in a way that points to God and not to myself. I want to put the needs of others above my own needs. I want to make sure that my words are honoring to people and see people as image bearers so that when there are people who are online and who disagree with me or people in groups that disagree with me, I still honor them as in someone that God created and formed in their mother's wombs. That every person you've ever locked eyes with or any person you've ever spoken to online is someone that God loves dearly. Someone that is made in the image of God. 
Every person you've ever locked eyes with is someone that Jesus died for. Every person you've ever locked eyes with is someone the Holy Spirit wants to draw one step closer to Christ today. And so if we were to hinder that witness through our harsh words, then woe be to us. Woe be to us to ever get in the way of how God does it. Does that mean there's, do we still believe in objective truth in God's word? Absolutely. I'm not saying that we bend the gospel to our will or to our culture. What I'm saying is that we love people just as Jesus did in the midst of their pain and their heartache and their trial and their sin. He loved them because they couldn't earn it and neither can we. Friends, if we look at those around us and we recognize that, as Paul says in another of his letters, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And if we grasp that, it's the recognition that when Jesus shared on, his, on this earth that even our thoughts, even our thoughts can be sinful. That if you lust after someone, that's adultery. If you think harshly and with anger towards someone, that's murder. When we take that to its nth degree, to its extreme, we take that literally, it means that we know the depth of our sin more than anybody else could ever know because we know our thoughts that nobody else knows around us. So we could truly say we are the worst of sinners. And yet Christ died for the worst so that we could all have his best. Friends, we can rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. Or if we don't, if we're not careful, we could snooze and lose and miss out on our part in God's story. So how does it, what does it look like for us as you leave today to ask God to reveal how your works, your words, and your worship, are they pleasing to him and are you shining like stars? Or we keep hitting the snooze button on what God has for us and saying, not seven more minutes, but maybe we say, seven more years, God. I'll change and I'll change later. But maybe God is stirring within you to change today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, and I thank you for the fact that, Lord, you are here with us now, Holy Spirit. You are speaking, you are moving. God, I thank you that, um, that you could take whatever we share here, Holy Spirit, you can shape it and mold it into exactly what each and every one of us need to hear. God, I pray that every person who's part of our service will have a moment today, whether it was through the sermon, through the songs that we've sang, the song we're about to sing, through a connection and fellowship, that they would have a moment that they say, this is why I was here. And Holy Spirit, only you can make that happen. God, I pray that we would be able to rise and shine. Those of us who know you and love you would rise and shine and give you glory in all we say, think, and do. And that we wouldn't push the snooze button on the conviction, Holy Spirit, you are putting upon us now. But they would let you work in us before you work through us. So God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.